This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to this episode of Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. Easter Sunday is one of the church's most significant festivals. Today, it's marked by chocolate eggs and in the UK, two bank holidays to denote its importance. In the medieval world, it had a deeply spiritual significance that has lost its grip for many today. But it also had its share of celebration and merrymaking too. The importance of Easter in the medieval Christian calendar can be seen by the 40 days of fasting that led up to it. The 40 days of fasting then became a reason to celebrate Easter, not only because of the salvation of the soul, but also the return of the food you'd been missing for so long. Monday, Thursday, Good Friday and Holy Saturday meant a lot of time in church, but also ramped up the excitement for Easter Sunday and the feasts and fun that accompanied that most holy of moments. I think we consider medieval church life to have been a bit of a drag but they knew how to fuse together religious worship with a bit of fun. First things first though, where did the name Easter come from? Easter is another example of early Christianity's willingness to work with existing pagan festival times to ease the acceptance of the new religion. In the early medieval period, the spring season around which Easter is usually celebrated was widely associated with a pagan goddess of spring. Her name, has very similar forms across dialects from Ostara in Old German to Asteron in Saxon and from Estra in Mercian and West Saxon dialects to Astri in Old English. For a long time, there has been debate over whether Astri existed, though the discovery in 1958 of the Matronae Austriahenae, more than 150 inscriptions dating from the 2nd century referring to these goddesses, tends to lend it more weight. The Venerable Bede, the famous 8th century Northumbrian monk known as the father of English history, was thought to have made her up. He wrote very neatly about the crossover between pagan and Christian celebrations at this time of the year in his The Reckoning of Time. Ustermonath has a name which is now translated Paschal Month and which was once called after a goddess of theirs, named Ustra, in whose honour feasts were celebrated in that month. Now they designate that paschal season by her name, calling the joys of the new rite by the time-honoured name of the old observance. 
So it seems that both the time of year and the name of Easter are both leftovers of a pagan past. Spring was widely celebrated as the beginning of brighter times, warmer days and more food. All of that fit nicely with Christianity's portrayal of Christ's death and resurrection as a time of rebirth, fresh hope and new light entering the world. It's no coincidence Christ is called the Lamb of God and his triumph over death is celebrated at just the moment lambs are littering the fields of the countryside and filling the air with the sounds of new life and fresh meat for the table, but perhaps we should gloss over that for the moment. The cross is a central symbol of Christianity. The crucifix is differentiated as a cross with a representation of Christ on it too. Crucifixes became less acceptable in Protestant countries during the Reformation, but remain important in Catholicism, and the cross has kept its place throughout Christianity. The story of the cross is so central to Christianity that it isn't only recalled at Easter. The Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross is celebrated on the 14th of September each year to commemorate three key moments in the story of the cross. The true cross was reportedly found by St Helena, mother of Emperor Constantine in the 4th century. It also recalls the first churches built on the site of the Holy Sepulchre and Mount Calvary and the restoration of the true cross to Jerusalem in 629 after a 15-year absence in the hands of a Persian emperor. The importance of the cross, and particularly the true cross, is reinforced by the fact that fragments of the true cross were so highly prized as relics. In fact, so many fragments probably existed that if they were put together, the cross might well have been massive, but believers wanted to believe. When Constantinople was sacked in 1204 during the Fourth Crusade, parts of the vast treasures included segments of the true cross, which it was claimed had been left there by Helena and had been painted and decorated with jewels. One night, Robert de Clary claimed within this chapel were found many precious relics, for therein were found two pieces of the true cross, as thick as a man's leg and a fathom in length. They were split into many different fragments and distributed among the bishops, barons and knights present. They, in turn, took these home and donated them to local religious institutions across Europe. By the 16th century, the reformer John Calvin, perhaps reflecting the cynicism we might look back on this with, wrote, There is no abbey so poor as not to have a specimen. In some places, there are large fragments as at the Holy Chapel in Paris, at Poitiers, and at Rome, where a good-sized crucifix is said to have been made of it. In brief, if all the pieces that can be found were collected together, they would make a big shipload, yet the Gospel testifies that a single man was able to carry it. Did Edison really take credit for things he didn't invent? Were treadmills originally a form of corporal punishment? And would man have ever got to the moon without the bra? You can expect answers to all these questions and more 
in the brand new podcast from history hit, Patented History of Inventions. Join me, Dallas Campbell, as I uncover what really sparked history's most impactful ideas. Each episode, I'll be recruiting the help of experts, scientists, historians, and even a few real-life inventors. Subscribe to Patented History of Inventions wherever you listen to your podcasts. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There are a large number of different styles of cross still in circulation today. The Latin cross is perhaps the most recognisable in Western Christianity with its longer lower limb. A Greek cross has four arms of equal length, and there are designs with flourishes at the ends of the arms that have been used in different places at different times. The Bible doesn't describe Christ's crucifixion as being on a cross in the shape that usually appears in Christian art, and neither does it state that Jesus was nailed to a cross, with tying the limbs a more common and more likely practice. The story of doubting Thomas perhaps adds weight to the idea of wounds inflicted by nails, but these wouldn't have supported the body's weight alone. Medieval Western European art of the crucifixion invariably, though not exclusively, shows Christ wearing little clothing nailed to a Latin-style cross. One mid-12th century Italian image attributed to Bonaventura Berlingeri shows Jesus crucified on a Y-shape. This image of suffering complemented the church's teaching that through his pain, Jesus had secured forgiveness of man's sins and risen again. For a world in which life was often very hard, the idea that enduring it led to eternal life and happiness was a powerful one. Pilgrimage could be an important element of Easter. This was spectacularly combined with one of the worst elements of the use of the cross symbol in 1149. Louis VII, King of France, and his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, 
set off on the Second Crusade in 1147. It was a disaster from beginning to end, really. The symbol of the cross became inextricably linked with crusades to the Holy Land. Those embarking on the journey would take the cross by sewing the symbol onto their clothes as a badge to identify them. The word crusade is derived from the Latin crux, meaning cross. It may be hard to appreciate the religious mindset of those fighting religious wars, though they do still go on today, but the marks left in parts of the world by religious conflict in the medieval period can be seen clearly today. Anytime we manage to equate religion with a desire to harm others, I think we've made a mistake. Louis's military reasons for being in the Holy Land foundered and were eventually forgotten amid embarrassing setbacks. The royal couple did reach Jerusalem though in May 1148, where more military failures ensued. Despite these, and a growing clamour from France for the king to return home, Louis sat tight in Jerusalem, waiting for Easter 1149. During this holy period, he gave alms to the poor and toured the sites associated with Christ's life, death and resurrection, and then he left. Doubtless, it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience for Louis and Eleanor and those who remained with them, but it was almost as though all that loss of life along the way had only been so that Louis could spend the holiest days of the Christian calendar in the city where the events had played out 1100 years earlier. Food was on the minds of many in the run-up to Easter too. After the 40 days of fasting in the lead-up to Easter, which remind the faithful of Jesus' time spent in the wilderness being tempted, Easter Sunday would come as a relief. It's easy to forget that for most people, all day was spent in manual labour, meaning that their calorific requirements were much higher than our recommended intake today. Some estimates suggest that medieval peasants would have needed to consume between 6,000 and 9,000 calories a day. Fasting was a really big deal. During Lent, no meat but fish could be eaten and that impacts your ability to take on calories. The Christian church tended to require abstinence from meat on certain days of every week. In England, it was on Wednesdays, Fridays and Saturdays. At Lent, Advent and Pentecost, this was extended to a prolonged period of fasting. Animal flesh was widely considered to lead to gluttony and lust. And dairy products were also forbidden as being what St Jerome had called molten flesh. On Easter Sunday, all bets were off. Landowners would invite their tenants in for feasts, as they had done around Christmas. Part of this mirrored the idea of the Last Supper, at which Jesus fed his disciples. Posh bread and fine meat would have been an incredible way for poorer peasants to break their Lenten fast. One question was, how early could you indulge yourself on Easter Sunday? Well, you should attend Mass first, obviously unless your local rector was someone like the man at Nettleham near Lincoln in the late 14th century. He got into trouble with his local bishop for serving his congregation ham and eggs before the mass. Seems like my kind of guy. Lamb was often the central part of an Easter Sunday feast, particularly at the tables of bishops. It represented Jesus's position as the Lamb of God, but also fit the season and the idea of new life albeit new life that wouldn't see Easter Sunday. Lamb was a Jewish Passover food, which many thought would have featured at the Last Supper too, so Christianity here, again, borrowed from existing traditions. By the way, medieval cooks 
suggested pairing ginger sauce with roasted lamb. One foodstuff that is still closely linked to Easter today is eggs. Obviously, there's no chocolate in medieval Europe, which is one of the main reasons that I'm glad to be alive today. But eggs had been associated with the festival for centuries. Anglo-Saxon pagans in England used them to represent renewal brought by the season. Another part of the reason for the connection is that eggs were forbidden food during Lent. Rather than waste the foodstuff, though, the production of which was hard to control, any eggs laid during Lent tended to be hard-boiled. Once they were back on the menu, there was a stock of preserved eggs to draw on for a feast. In 1407, the Easter Sunday feast thrown by Robert Mitford, the Bishop of Salisbury, included two lambs for the top table and 500 eggs. The accounts of Roger of Leybourne show that during a break in hostilities while he was besieged in Rochester Castle by Simon de Montfort, he used 1,400 eggs to feed the garrison on Easter Sunday. Eggs weren't only eaten during medieval Easter celebrations. In Germanic areas, they might be blown out, painted green and hung from trees, not unlike Christmas baubles. The Orthodox medieval church often used red to paint eggs to symbolise the blood of Christ spilled at Easter. One English trick was boiling the eggs with onions to give them the appearance of turning gold, while Edward I took this one step further in 1290 by having 450 eggs covered in gold leaf and given as gifts to his household. There was also a tradition not dissimilar to wassailing during the Christmas season that saw costumed members of the community go door to door collecting eggs that were then donated to either the local church or landowner as an offering. Bunnies seem to have become associated with Easter long after the medieval period, and chocolate arrived later too. But a lot of what we associate with Easter can be recognised from a medieval celebration. Lamb, eggs, days off work and loads of food. Perhaps one thing that is much less common now is the same kind of Lenten fasting. I suspect lots of us will have given up some vice for Lent, maybe as an excuse for a health kick. Perhaps we don't really stick to it and don't see why it matters. I gave up chocolate and alcohol this year, so if you're listening to this episode the Saturday before Easter Sunday, just know that I'm looking at chocolate like a vampire looks at a neck right now. Is it good for us to give a bit of thought to what we're grateful for, or to stop taking some of those things for granted? Did you give something up for Lent? If so, drop me a tweet or a comment and tell me what it was, and whether you made it all the way to the end. You can join Dr Kat Jarman on Tuesday for another brand new episode, and don't forget also to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from and tell all of your friends and family that you've gone medieval. If you have a moment, please do drop us a review or rate us wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Spotify now. It does help to lead new listeners to the podcast. If you're enjoying this and looking for a bit more medieval goodness in your life, then subscribe to our Medieval Monday newsletter. Just follow the links in the show notes below and I'll drop into your inbox every Monday with some hopefully fascinating thoughts and anniversaries. Anyway, I'd better let you go. I've been Matt Lewis, and we've just gone medieval with History Hit. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out, and you'll be doing me a big favour. 
Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.